0: It's Monday, April 27th. This is LA Podcast. I'm Scott Frazier here with Alyssa Walker and Hayes Davenport. Welcome to both of you. How are you both doing? Hi, Alyssa.
1: Hi, Scott. Hi, Hayes.
2: Doing well. I enjoyed a lot of stuff, even all the stuff that Alyssa wrote this week on Curbed. Um, Big article about... Project Roomkey in California came out, and how successful the state and various municipalities have been moving people into hotel rooms that was awesome. Got kind of a snarky quote retweet from a homeless the l a homeless services authority
0: that I was, didn't
1: see it as snarky. I thought it as like I saw it as like hurry up and get get more of these hotel rooms people
0: I could not tell that seemed like a pretty salty. <laughs> Retweet.
1: Well, let's give background. Yeah, it was in the story, I talked to somebody who had moved into one of these rooms and the process was so fast and so seamless. Like from the service provider perspective, which was Mm -hmm. St. Joseph Center, they work on the West Side and in South LA. They said they got a call, they had a list ready to go and they had people moved in within five days. So once you have the hotel rooms, I mean, this should happen pretty quickly, it sounds like.
2: Oh, so maybe if there was any snark, it was directed at some elected officials who have kind of implied that Lhasa and yes. uh, service providers are not making the like the, the people available quickly enough to move into the yes, hotel rooms. Because and I pointed saying, that out in the yeah. story,
1: too, because yeah. in the story, what keeps being said at like the mayor's nightly addresses is it's not that. There's a bunch of hotel rooms and no people Or sorry. I'm saying it wrong. What, what, what the mayor has been saying at his nightly addresses is somehow inferring that the rooms are ready. They just need people to put in them. But I think yes. talking to Lhasa and to people at St. Joseph Center, that's actually not the case. They're, the they're case. ready to go. They don't just they don't have enough rooms.
2: Right. And you wrote about some tips for exploring your neighborhood on uh, quarantine walks. Does this mean, are you like fully back out walking again? Like, cause there was a time that you wrote a while ago about like being unsure if, if, if walks were the safest thing to do, where are you on that these days?
1: (sighs) Walking is such, has become such an issue for me, right? Do you guys feel the same way? It's, I, I've been encouraged by several people, including my mother, to leave the house more for my own mental
2: yeah, <laughs> important. Your mother who has antibodies is speaking from a position of antibody privilege. <laughs> yeah, she can say that
1: because she's not worried. But I, I think I think this has become a real it's become a real challenge for me because there have been also some some stories over the last few weeks talking about how unlikely you are to get it from, say, brushing by someone on a path or something like that, like the the transmissions from, and again, we're learning more about this every day. It's not like we knew this a few weeks ago, but there's been a lot more studies that are about, you've seen these charts of like an air conditioner in a restaurant, like infected yeah. 25 people or something like that. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're keep showing that the, that, you know, the transmission risk is lower. And of course we should be outside and getting fresh air and getting sunlight on, you know, all that great UV light that will uh, kill the viruses, mm-hmm. uh, yep. open our mouths wide and uh, just disinfect our Yeah, you got to let tongues. it into
0: your body. <laughs> into your lungs.
1: <laughs> but yeah, I I have been trying to come to terms with the, the fact that a lot of people are out walking and w- how can we make sure that people are uh, being safe, but maybe also using their walking time in a productive way. And I, there was this wonderful Jeff McFetridge illustration or like a, a visual essay in the New York Times that had a unfortunately New York biased headline. We won't go into that. But it, it had something just so, such a wonderful ending to it that was like, I love seeing these so many people walking to my neighborhoods. So I wish it didn't feel like it was the end of the world. The, the reason they were there is because the world was ending. Yeah. And I think that's what's been really difficult for me too because almost every day someone's like, oh, I saw something in my neighborhood that I've never seen before and I'm walking to see things that I you know have, have never visited and it doesn't that make you happy and it really doesn't make me <laughs> happy at all. all right. And I, I am like really sad about it. But then I kind of, thought about it and I was like okay if people are out walking and we're supposed to stay in our own neighborhood and you want to take a short walk like here's a few things that to to think about or maybe we can get people to have new appreciation for this very ignored public realm and maybe become advocates for their cities and neighborhoods in in better ways than they were before so that's my new mission I guess but it's it's very conflicting as a as a walking person To be scared to walk and also to see people who are just walking because they're trapped in their houses all day. And then a lot of people can't walk. Walking is a privilege right now. You can't walk if you have an essential job or if you have a condition that doesn't allow you to be outside or if you have to take care of somebody. So someday I'll write something more about it. But (sighs)
2: Something for people to listen to while they walk. You'll love this segue. We lodged our premium subscription. The Sepulveda, the L.A. pod Sepulveda Pass is on Patreon, patreon.com slash the L.A. pod. New episode of our bonus show out up there for free with BJ Novak. The show is The Ten, where we ask people ten questions about their favorite stuff in L.A. That episode, I think, is really fun. Uh, We're going to put out another free episode this week with State Senator Maria Elena Durazo. And then everything is going behind the paywall never to emerge. (laughs) And so we're giving... Revenue from this endeavor to commission stories for the website, hire journalists, something that we're going to start doing soon. But we're really excited. We have, I think, almost 150 people that have signed up already for a subscription. And that rules. We're so excited to do stuff for that. And also this week, we're going to take a vote on the first movie we watch for 30 Miles Zone, the show where we watch and talk about LA movies and filming locations and how they got everything wrong or whatever. <laughs> Let's get into Miss Cove Geniality. Who do we want to award that to this week, Alyssa? And this is actually a good segue into our first big story of the week. I think.
1: Yes, I mean there have been there have been some real heroes in the the COVID era in Los Angeles, and I I think we need to just give a shout out to this completely random list of public interest lawyers that, are, uh, <laughs> that will lead us a segue into our first segment, as you said. So I'm just going to shout them out really quick. Doug Smith from Public Counsel, Craig Castillanette from Public Interest Law Project, Diane Pardo from Housing Equality and Advocacy Resource, Greg Spiegel and Ty Glenn from Inner City Law Project, and Elena Pop from Eviction Defense Network. Now what makes these all these names so important, Scott? why why should we know these these winners of this of this wonderful uh, and prestigious award?
0: I, I mean it's not it's not every day that misconge miscongeniality goes to the most <laughs> shameless group of of lawyers assembled in the city or whatever. These are these are folks who fought very hard and with a great deal of integrity to try and, and stop the, the city from waffling on its commitment to tenants throughout la and and they did that even though it was apparently a completely thankless job uh, well so I, I shouldn't say completely worse thankless. than thankless yeah you get blamed for it but no, I mean, so they did, they, they they have been, you know, thanked and defended by a number of people. Mike Bonin on the council did, did say that the argument that they provided for the legality. Well, let's
2: talk about, like, let's offer a little more context sure. for this, I think, for people that don't know. So there was a, another city council meeting this week to review a series of tenant protections, some motions that had been put forward for a rent freeze and eviction ban and also to turn rent debt into consumer debt to have it be classified as consumer debt so it would be like not uh, as much of a legal issue people didn't pay their rent this was all a pandemic response it's all stuff that other cities have done for the most part it's not like super radical stuff that was being proposed and these lawyers these public interest attorneys which i think is like kind of a fun like shade to just like any other kind of attorney they're like (laughs) like (laughs) that these are public interest attorneys and other attorneys are not, but it's true. (laughs) This group of public interest attorneys put together a a legal memo with a lot of citations, like beautifully constructed showing why these tenant protections were, were not just legal, but were also morally urgent and would head off huge crises for, for, for so many people. So they submitted this memo and it turned out there was a competing memo that the city attorney's office had put together. the The city attorney is Mike Fewer. This is a position that I think has been framed a lot this week by a lot of council members as like, oh, the city attorney, the, this this objective voice that like can never be wrong. Like anything the city attorney says is literally law. They but also city attorney, the,
0: the the city attorney's office also framed the issue that way themselves through, through their own representative yes. at the city council meeting they said that all they were doing was calling balls and strikes which was
2: calling balls and strikes yeah so imagine if the like if umpires were elected by fans <laughs> yeah in a vote and had to run for like the political position of being an umpire maybe <laughs> like saying like i'll be nicer to your team yeah. if you elect me <laughs> And then we're like, just call him balls and strikes. Like just our job. City attorney is a political position made even more so by the fact that the current city attorney, Mike fewer is running for mayor was the first person could not wait to announce after the 2020 primaries were over that he was running for mayor in 2022. So like this whole idea of objectivity is, is ridiculous. But in this context, City Attorney's Office put out a memo, didn't put it out, actually, wrote it and then released it under seal, made it confidential to the council members, saying that none of these tenant protections were legal, that the the city did not have a right to do these things, including some things that other cities had actually already done. Basically, uh, City
0: Attorney's Office said that if the city council did any of the things that you listed, making rent debt, consumer debt, banning evictions, any of those things... They said the city will be open to enormous liabilities, possibly up to a billion dollars. And we think the city will lose those lawsuits.
2: And of course, this this is a city that has never been sued before for anything. And so this would break (laughs) their uh, like their record of uh, never having committed any kind of legal overreach in any form.
1: (laughs) I mean, by this reasoning, we should repair all the sidewalks and, you know. Right. A billion dollar lawsuit that we did, in fact, lose.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And certainly the city council did not have a scheduled closed door meeting directly after this meeting to discuss another lawsuit that they lost when they were sued by the same public interest attorneys that they said were not credible in this meeting. These public interest (laughs) attorneys have been dragging them up and down Temple Street. For months, for for so many different things related to overreach on on homelessness, to the point that they they announced another settlement that they're now going to have to, like, house a lot more, shelter a lot more people than they are currently. The city had to agree to this because of these same public interest attorneys, but all through the meeting, they were like, oh, no, only the city attorney is credible, and the public interest attorneys are, are, are not credible. The whole thing was, like, completely ridiculous, but it turned out that even before yesterday's meeting... City council members were using the city attorney's memo to argue to people that they were not allowed to do these tenant protections. Uh, a Neighborhood council got an email from Mitch O'Farrell's office. So the, the neighborhood council wrote and said, like, you should pass these tenant protections. And it's bad that you didn't do this in your the last meeting mm-hmm. that you voted on it. And someone from his office wrote, I do not know where you are getting your information, but as I write this email, the city council is again discussing this motion in detail, and once again, the city attorney is strongly stating that the council does not have the authority to pass such a motion, and the city will be sued, causing even more harm to the people of Los Angeles. Are you asking council Member O'Farrell to ignore the city attorney?
0: <laughs> why is this why is this the way that Mitch O'Farrell's office responds to every are so you want us to you what you want us to do is something worse. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. That's, in, in every situation, that is how his staff responds. I, it's amazing. OK,
2: you. if that's what you want, we'll do something even worse. I mean, this conveniently was also political cover for something that they did not want to do in the first place, which was open up these these tenant protections. So they 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 go through the whole conversation, and when it was Mitchell Farrell's turn to speak, he said this about these public interest attorneys.
0: Um, I'm just going to say it. Public counsel should be ashamed of themselves. There is nothing laudable about what they published last night. In fact, they engaged in sins of omission that actually harmed the people that they claim to be helping who are pinning their hopes on on." a rent freeze or forgiveness, that the city does not have the authority to enact. And that is not okay. It's it's really so unfortunate when any entity engages in a misinformation campaign that seeks to foment chaos and division. And I would hate to think that that has made its way on this Los Angeles City Council, because we're not
2: here to pick winners and losers in some sort of charade of a, uh, a, a battle, fomenting chaos, essentially accusing public counsel of being the joker. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Specifically the part where the joker asked the Batman to pick winners and losers between like that boat and like the
2: other people..: He's like, Exactly. Yeah. How dare the joker dress as a nurse <laughs> in order to blow up a hospital? That's essentially what public counsel is, is doing. By advocating for <laughs> tenant protections that cities like, for example, Oakland have already done. Already done.
0: You know, M- Mitchell Farrell's, the, 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 the cowardice that he has displayed throughout this entire period of, of the, the COVID-19 crisis has been really remarkable to watch. I think at this point, well, that, so there, there are two different ways that this meeting could have gone. He could have, I mean, he could have responded to the immense backlash that he faced on this show and elsewhere in the city from people in his district who think that, you know, by being the deciding vote against this eviction moratorium the first time it was up before the city attorney memo came out, that he made a crucial error in judgment. He could have responded to those those claims and said, you know what, I've got another chance at this. I will vote for this eviction moratorium. However, what he actually decided to do was to say, everybody who thinks that I did not act in like uh, as a paragon of virtue in this case and all other mm-hmm. cases is the victim of a misinformation campaign by mm-hmm. a legal nonprofit working to <laughs> defend people from eviction. It it's so ridiculous, and I, I you don't really get the sense that anybody actually. Believes that that is the case, that there is a concerted misinformation campaign going on here. Instead, what people seem to agree on is that the the memo, which I mean, we we can talk about the details of it in in some in in a, in a minute here, but the because it got leaked, as was obviously going to happen. as was going to happen. But the the memo, like like you're saying, Hayes, ends up being a very political document. Ends up being yeah. a document about uh, a fight that. The city attorney's office doesn't think is worth having. And, and that's mm-hmm. what they're saying. They're they're using what a lot of what a lot of legal opinions, including those of, of our Miss Cove genialities for this week, have have suggested is not sound logic. I, I'm not a legal expert, but I, I tr- do trust their opinion and also those of, like you're saying, the cities that have done this already. It it's unfortunate that our city council in Los Angeles was so willing to run for political cover offered to them by the city attorney's office. And very unfortunate that the city attorney's office has been putting their thumb on the scale against tenants every step of the way throughout this process.
2: Because when they think something is is worth pursuing, when the city attorney's office does feel like a case is worth arguing, like, for example, the right to arrest people who are sleeping on the sidewalk, you know, because they take it to the Supreme Court. Yep. Who decides not to hear it? <laughs> you know they so have been you... on the. They
0: have been on. So like Martin versus Boise, that was that was a case where policies that affect the city of Los Angeles were deemed to violate the Constitution, deemed to be uh, cruel and unusual cruel punishment, and unusual right? punishment. Yeah, so violating the Eighth Amendment, then the the violation of the ADA on the massive scale that we talked about in the Willett settlement leading to that billion-dollar street repair that LA is going to have to do over 30 years. Now, the 5611 bulky items enforcement, which, like you were talking about, they just talked about during the past city council meeting because they're losing again, and the judge said mm-hmm. that they are likely to lose on constitutionality grounds there. The city mm-hmm. is frequently frequently doing things that end up being determined, if not illegal, unconstitutional. And the the remarkable thing is that the city attorney will always go to bat for those unconstitutional policies. Martin v. Boise, they petitioned the Supreme Court saying that the city would become lawless if it were forced to provide shelter for everybody who was sleeping on the streets. They go to the mattresses for these things all the time. And where they want to draw the line is what is probably a legal use of the city's emergency powers to stop all evictions regardless of, regardless of the cause until such time as the emergency or crisis has been resolved. And so we, we know that because the the memo was, was leaked. We know what their their logic was. Hey, do you want to go into that?
2: Yeah. I mean, yes, I do want to keep talking about the memo, but I I want to go on a quick tangent first before we get too far away from Mitch O'Farrell. Also this week, uh, a group of activists were doing a car protest outside his home, as they've done for, I think, most council members at this point and the mayor now multiple times driving around and honking their horns for 20, 30 minutes. And Alyssa, what was the course of action taken as a as, as a result of that car protest,
1: someone uh, got their dad called on them. I guess <laughs>
2: <laughs> council member O'Farrell's <laughs> partner called the dad of <laughs> Jacob Woocher, one of the protetor, protesters, and said that he should carry that he Jacob Woocher should carry himself with more decorum. And this is actually the second who does story. That? We have Who heard dads? of a uh, Council Member O'Farrell or someone in his family calling to essentially tattle <laughs> on someone. Yeah,
1: tattling.
3: Who does uh, in that?
2: This, in this case, uh, the person's father. But in the case of Ashley Bennett, a a Lasa caseworker, uh, their boss. Oh yeah, is that's the, right. Is, is, is the story that the uh, she heard because she participated in a in a protest. O'Farrell denies having called Lasa and gotten her fired. But this, I would say, this story lends a little bit of credence to the additional story that, that calling someone's parent or boss is, um, is, is part yes, of the. Yes, if here. if you have if you have difficulty
0: believing that Councilmember O'Farrell was acting like a petulant jerk, we now have additional data points. I mean,
1: <laughs> well, one one other thing too that just really bothered me about that statement was this idea that advocates for people are sowing false hope, right? So mm-hmm. is advocacy <laughs> is advocacy f- creating false hope for people who can't pay their rent by suggesting that you might be able to use your emergency powers to change that situation? Like, how is that? It, that doesn't make any sense. And, and another public interest attorney that I spoke to this week for my story, Shayla Myers, who has been calling for the commandeering of hotels to help house people, made a great point that like, Nothing that we are proposing right now is in any way as radical as the shelter in place orders that we're already under as a, mm-hmm. a state, you know, as a, as a nation. But I think that that's a really interesting way to phrase it. Like nothing is off the table right now. And to somehow say that advocates who are pushing for a very progressive vision that would will not only protect people, but will save lives and that will yeah. keep people, you know, in an economic state where they'll be able to take care of their families, that. That, to me, the opposite is the false hope that we, like, the false hope is that we have elected officials that are going to stand up for us and protect us. That's just such a, such a weird phrase to pick.
0: It's it's yeah. very interesting to me. I, I think the the contrast between city council and Congress is really interesting because if you, like, Congress, mm-hmm. Congress people, senators, they know that they are part of, like, the the most reviled public institution. They know that people hate them and like regard them as like inherently villainous. Right. And then like in city council, so much energy on their part has during this, this entire, this entire crisis period where we've had more visibility into what city council is doing and thinking than at any point in time during the entirety of the 2010s. So they spend an inordinate amount of time praising themselves and one another for like for doing less than I think what what any of us would consider the bare minimum of acceptable action. And they're Mm -hmm. like, they just seem confounded by the fact that nobody else is praising them in the way that they think they should be praised.
2: But yeah, this false hope. I want to get to that. Yeah, go ahead. Because so the big fight was basically Councilmember Mike Bonin, who put forward a lot of these tenant protections, was continually pointing out that when Governor Gavin Newsom put a limited eviction ban into uh, state law under emergency powers, he said explicitly that this did not prevent cities from implementing a more expansive eviction ban when like, if they wanted to. And his argument was like, Governor Newsom said this, it's right here. And the city attorney's argument was basically, no, he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And and no, we can't do this, even though it was explicitly laid out that we can. And they both explicitly called each other basically liars over the course of that. They uh, took turns saying that what the other was saying was false. None of the, the tenant protections passed except a rent freeze, which is now being allowed to pass at the time when the city needs it less than it ever has, because so it's a freeze on rent increases uh, and a time when already rents are falling. Average rent in LA, right. as a result of this crisis of and course. the pandemic, like rents are going down. Like we needed this rent freeze a few months ago <laughs> when the market was really, really hot and rents were increasing way past wages, like to try and keep people in their homes. Now we need it much less, so of course now we get it it's it's like it will save some people money but this was the least transformative policy that was on the table which of course is why it was the the one that passed but in terms of scott what you were saying about attitudes and like the ego i mean like so much of this just comes down to personality yeah. right and i think someone like Mitch farrell and gil cedillo who is very interesting flipped his vote yeah. from two weeks from a few weeks ago when he voted for an eviction ban. Now this time voted against it. These are the kind of people who, if you go outside their house and honk your horn and yell at them, they will do the opposite of whatever it is that you are asking to do.
1: And call your dad.
2: And call your dad. Like (laughs) they do not respond positively to this kind of input. They relish the opportunity to chastise. At this past meeting, Gil Cidio mentioned, I think for the second time in the last month, he talked about like activists and like T-shirts and slogans and like.
1: F- oh, yeah, that was really that again, like this uh, this belittling of the advocates and active yeah. uh, advocates, 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 but like to to call out and ridicule these people who are fighting for your constituents i mean it's so insulting it, it's just so insulting
0: it's, but he thinks of himself alone self. we know best yeah. do not do not try to tell us what you would like to see come out of this policy making body we are not interested in your input that's that's what every media we're not does.
1: interested in your false hope
2: but he gifts to thinks of himself as like an og progressive like he was a Bernie guy in 2016 and 2020 like it's kind of like these kids today these activists have no idea how they're so much dumber than we used to be when when we were doing it there was that moment in the last council meeting when Mike Bonin said that Gil Cidio sounded more like Hillary than Bernie which you know burned Gil's ass so bad (laughs) you know that he hated that but like that I mean, so much more than any like policy or politics even, I think it is just personality. Yeah. They just rub them the wrong way. Yeah. And so that's how you get someone like Gil Cidio to flip a vote is right. by is by is by protesting about it too much. So he was on that side and he's like, Now I won't do it anymore. Is that any reason not to protest? No, absolutely not. The, but. but the
0: yeah, and and the good point to make here is that now by virtue of, you know, this like wondrous phenomenon of split votes on, on motions yes. before the council, like you can actually more easily hold people accountable for it. It's not just, yeah, I voted for that thing, but everybody voted for it, it is like, you are actually taking a stand one way or another. Yep. And that's a big deal. One of our earlier episodes, Hayes, or maybe a couple of times, I remember you talking about how you were jealous of San Francisco with their like mods yes. and progressives. And and it's yes. funny because on the same if you're like looking at this on the same spectrum, LA and, and San Francisco, San Francisco did the rent freeze that LA did, except they applied it to all of their rental stock. LA only yep. did it to RSO units, which had already been done by the mayor.
1: Right. Uh, yeah.
0: They ex- extended the the amount of days which below, is good but Yes, um, yeah. But, but they, they balked at the, the proposition to expand that to cover the non-RSO units because they felt like that exceeded their, their legal authority. I feel like when you're looking now at the L.A. and San Francisco, like the spectrum of political activism, San Francisco might very well have exclusively moderates and progressives. L.A. seems to be controlled by a con- conservative bloc. That probably makes up, like,
2: a majority of the council, right? Do you, you feel like that's accurate? Yeah. I I've, Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think they would point to a lot of national issues. I mean, when you talk about, like, conservative on the national level, you know, on issues like gay marriage or gun control. There's basically nobody on the council that is not a mainstream liberal on, like— most of the issues that separate Democrats from Republicans when it comes to like, they're all like anti-Trump. I feel like even John Lee, if you asked him, would be like, yeah, yeah I'm not a huge. I'm a Republican, but he wouldn't even say that anymore. He's an right, independent. Exactly. But when it comes to the stuff they actually vote on that matters for people in Los Angeles. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the majority of the council you could probably call conservative at this point. We, I do want to mention one other good thing that happened in this council meeting, which was a vote on the right of workers to return to jobs that they had lost in the in the pandemic. Uh, once the once the businesses reopen, business owners are required to go back and rehire uh, based on seniority people that had worked at that business before. I do want to point out uh, that it was narrowed this right of uh, or, or right of recall, they call it to event venues with more than a 1,000 seats, such as stadiums and concert halls, hotels with at least 50 rooms, some companies that operate at airports, and commercial properties such as offices, shopping centers, or factories that employ at least 25 janitorial maintenance and security workers. That's pretty specific. Very, very specific. Uh, not a coincidence. I always wonder how you can like write an article about this and not be like... So th- those workforces are represented by specifically two unions. Uh, Unite here is for hotel and some restaurant workers and like stadium workers. Uh, And the SEIU represents a lot of those janitorial custodial maintenance workers and in large facilities. What left out of the, like when it was narrowed, retail workers essentially got left out. So like they don't have the right of recall and restaurant workers got left out. And the reason that happened is because they don't have a, Yes. Or in some cases, a union at all. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that like this, this was good that it got passed, but it got passed because there was power behind it. Unite here is what is like is a strong union that they bring a lot of like political flex. And so that's why something like this passes 15 to zero. Yeah. And something uh, that is pushed by tenant advocates who do not have a union do not certainly don't have like the power to set up a a PAC and spend money against a candidate.
1: Well, they, do, they
0: do have the, the, the tenants union, but the disparity in power between yeah. the L.A. Tenants Union and a and, uh, Unite Here SEIU is obviously quite large.
2: Yeah. So stuff, you know, that like whenever something like this gets passed, that is good. I think it's useful to look at like what was the like the source of power that got this through the council unanimously Let's move on. Oh, I uh, wanted to talk a little bit about the new covid numbers, which we've been summarizing every week, but mostly to talk about how I don't think the numbers are even relevant anymore. The case numbers are so ridiculous. Alyssa, I don't know. I mean, like you follow these numbers when they come out. We always like text about it. And what we saw this week was so frustrating that I don't know. Is it even worth uh, discussing? I mean,
1: one thing that's that's changed in other cities is they've moved the date, the reporting date to either like when the person actually died or when the case, when the to case numbers to when the test was actually made. So that would have helped this week when we had a couple of days where we had like a thousand new cases, but it was because of tests, mm-hmm. a lab, like one or two labs have it had backlog of tests or something like that. So that really makes the numbers look Quite strange, and you do have these like seven day average numbers that you see in a lot of the tracking projects. I think the LA Times does that too, where they have like it it makes it evens out the little bumps a little bit more, as it helps you get a really good idea of trends over time. So those are two things that might help us understand what's going on. But I think the only real important number we have, you know, deaths went down a a little bit compared to the higher numbers that we had at the beginning of the week. Mm -hmm. You know, we we have we're it looks like maybe we're on a little bit more of a downward trend when it comes to the numbers of deaths reported. But the only real number that we need to know now and the the information we need to be pushing for now is this institutional setting deaths and cases, which are troubling, very troubling. And across the state, this is troubling.
2: Which is now, I I think the last uh, figure for the percent of deaths in institutional settings was 39%. That is a staggeringly huge number. Even when you account for the fact that most of the people who are dying are older, are more likely to be, in a setting uh, like a nursing facility, but that it also includes shelters like for people who are homeless, prisons, jails, that all counts. And there is some evidence piling up that where these deaths are mostly happening are in places that had regulatory issues in in, in, in the past and issues specifically with infection control. So that is, I guess, a good reason why those regulations existed in the first place for situations exactly like this. And we seem to be kind of paying the, the price for it now.
0: Yeah. I feel like the, the, I mean, so I've been saying for a couple of weeks now that I feel like these, the case numbers in particular are more or less junk data. They're, they're, they don't, yeah. they don't really enlighten that much specifically because what Alyssa said, where we don't actually hear, we're not recording what is the date of the test so that we can actually get a sense yeah. of what the curve looks like over time, but mostly because the the potential for underreporting is so great. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's always going to be some underreporting, but if we're talking about uh, underreporting at a level of maybe somewhere between 10 and 50 times as many people as we know have positively been identified through tests as having this disease actually have it then it makes it very hard for us to draw meaningful conclusions and very easy to draw meaningless conclusions from that data. The hospitalization, the like people who have coronavirus and have been admitted to an ICU, especially relative to the number of available ICU beds, that data is very meaningful. I don't know that we've systematically started releasing that or getting that information from the Department of Public Health yet. They're reporting hospitalizations that have occurred at any point in time ever and not really mm-hmm. frequently reporting current hospitalizations. That's important. Yeah, you can see
2: the new numbers. They'll they'll report like a, like a number every day yeah. and you just have to like calculate that, like how many of the hospitalizations are new. Right. But again, same as case numbers, you don't know if there's some kind of backlog in reporting, right. Right. like it's all kept very vague. And what this suggests to me is like, do we have, I mean, if eventually test and trace is what we need to do to like get back to normal, It kind of seems like we do not have the system set up yet to do really robust testing, because even the testing that we're doing now appears to like the data appears to be garbage. No. And I mean, Gavin Newsom has said like
0: he was in the news for his volunteer corps that he wanted to have uh, to operate test and trace. But we can compare that to other announcements that he's made during the the course of the, the pandemic period the the contract that was supposedly inked for like ppe production with with china mm-hmm. which who knows what's up with that even but like like yeah. he's he's said a lot of things in a declarative way that we don't still have a ton of insight into the, the progress on them so as far as test and trace i i don't think that we're any closer today than we were a couple of weeks ago I, I do want to say though the the institutional numbers the, the numbers of people who are dying of this disease in institutional settings is extremely concerning here. I, I've been looking at the like the, the data for people who have died of coronavirus in, in different counties in, in California and and we've talked about this Hayes like mm-hmm. the the gap that is opening up between LA and other counties now where I think the per capita rate, or deaths from COVID in L.A. County is twice in L.A. County what it is in Santa, Santa Clara County. So right. it is substantially different. It still is not on a trajectory like the places that are the worst hit, but it is substantially yeah. different and worse than a lot of other places in California. When we look at that that number, which is increasing day by day, 40% of people who have died from coronavirus in L.A. County are in one of these institutional settings That number keeps increasing as the number of deaths grow. It it is so people dying in institutional settings, they're dying at a much faster rate than the population overall. And it's getting worse and worse. And if we were to remove that segment of the population, then our numbers look a lot more like the rest of California. So we have to wonder, like, what is happening in these settings? And you're saying Mm -hmm. there are regulatory issues there, which I believe is, is totally the case. But... But it's very dangerous. Like the 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 danger is is clear, should be clear. And every day as we're seeing these numbers get worse and worse, it should be extremely concerning to, to everybody who lives here.
2: Speaking of concerning effects of the pandemic, let's talk about the mayor's proposed budget. We tipped this in our episode last week that it was going to be released on Monday. It was the mayor and his state of the city promised that there would be a lot of cuts. There were a lot of cuts. Most city employees are taking a 10 percent furlough, which uh, amounts to uh, 10% less, take home pay for doing less work. Uh, A lot of departments were were cut that you would think could be useful in a a pandemic. Uh, The Department of Aging, Housing and Community Investment, Department of Economic and Workforce Development, which helps people find jobs in an extremely high unemployment context. And what the mayor said in the state of the city and in the aftermath was that we were in this huge revenue crisis that the pandemic has gutted our tax receipts. And that's so we were going to have to cut costs, we're gonna have to tighten our belts. But you look at this budget. And that's true of some taxes, in particular, the uh, transient occupancy tax, which is from hotels, people staying in hotels, the sales tax is going down a little bit. But overall, revenue is projected to go up even from not just from last year's like final budget, which ended up getting decreased because of the pandemic, but even from the like proposed budget last year, they're predicting more revenue than that because property taxes, they're expecting to take home a lot more like, and you compare this to the 2008 crisis where revenue was actually going down and they, uh, because uh, property taxes were the hardest hit property taxes are the biggest part of the revenue projection. And since those are projected to go up, Revenue is projected to go up as well. So why is it that we have to make all these cuts in a context where revenue is projected to increase?
1: Is this the trick question?
2: It's because we are paying cops. (laughs) Uh, So like basically what have we talked? We've talked about this a little bit in the past, but the city approved these massive raises for all city employees. And the biggest pay increases are going to the LAPD. Uh, $110 million in police salaries, $35 million, uh, in police overtime, bringing their overtime budget to $200 million, which is a record by such a huge amount. It's impossible to even calculate. These were deals that were made before the pandemic. People were still predicting a recession. I mean, like they say, like oh, we had no idea this was going to happen. But like the city administrative officer at the time was like, within the next couple of years, there's going to be a recession. Yep. So maybe we should think about handing out these these enormous raises. These raises are being cut into for most city employees who are getting a 10% pay cut in the form of furloughs, but not for the police department who are not getting furloughed. Their civilian employees are getting furloughed, but not officers. And same for the fire department, the same situation, but way less money when it comes to the fire department. So I guess my question is, do you feel like... I mean, as I do that, these cuts are to some extent being sold on a lie. There's no mention of like our, our our costs have increased a huge amount because of what we're paying our employees because of this deal that we made that we don't want to open up because they'd be really mad. So I mean, they're saying like you, you have to make these cuts just because revenue has has fallen. Is this the messaging that you're hearing as well? Am I am I am I crazy?
1: To me, it it's it sounds like something that is very loaded in the sense that we are going into this very uncertain time and it makes it seem like the city will be lawless and we need to make sure that we have cops on every corner to protect us. And I have a sense that there will be little pushback from a lot of people in the city who feel like we need to be protected and be safe in this time because who knows what's going to happen.
2: Yeah, the jobless horde will begin wandering the street Sorry, the
1: evicted the evicted yes. horde too yes yeah
2: <laughs> nothing else to do so we need to increase not the number of police that we have just their overtime because of course the police union requested specifically that more cops not be hired and instead the existing cops just be given more overtime so same number of cops working longer hours to to keep the peace, even though all the evidence that we have, including in L.A. from the last recession, is that crime goes down in recession.
1: And, and crime has gone down during this experience, too. It's dramatically,
2: dramatically, which is kind of what you would expect from people being locked up in their homes all the time. I, I
0: do feel like the to answer your question, I, I certainly feel like the, the premise of the mayor's budget is dishonest it's uh, it is using the existing crisis. I mean it, it's it's kind of peculiar when you really think about it because nothing would be easier I first of all when you when you shared the the budget with me and you were you were going through and doing analysis of it, I was shocked that they were projecting actual revenue increases for the next several years. Nothing mm-hmm. would be easier as you're putting together this budget. Than to pre- predict a, a flat or declining revenue, not like anybody's going to check you on it several years later. It, it's if you are if you are of a mind that cuts need to be made somewhere, it, it's fairly easy to come up with a justification for that. So to enact these really stringent cuts against uh, a backdrop of increasing revenue, particularly that going to the police department and fire departments. And everybody else is taking the hit for them. It's hard. It's hard to read this as anything other than selling the public something that is different from the reality that that actually exists within the city administration. And I, I think you know Garcetti had one one phrase in particular that I think kind of underlines this. He said so during his State of the City address, he said. We face sharp limits right now, but I draw a red line around the foundation of our common good, those back to basics investments that keep our neighborhoods safe, our streets mm-hmm. clean, our families housed, and our children and seniors fed. So most of those departments are actually getting cut, but the, yes. the keep our streets safe part of it, is, which which is name checked first, is presumably a reference to the police and fire departments and the police department. It's definitely
2: not a reference to uh, car crashes, limiting those or making it safe for people to walk around because that's all getting cut. That's all getting cut. So but the, the saying the, the
0: red line around keeping our streets safe is, is a very, if you think about it on like the way that this rhetoric would be proposed on a national level, it's the same way that we would, justify increasing a defense budget during a recession as, as a country. This is the way that we would say, like, what you want us to make our, our city less safe. Like, I, I, for one, am not going to do that as mayor. It's, it, it is staking a, a very political flag in this discussion and making sure that whoever whoever wants to question the way that this budget is constructed has to make the argument from scratch that the 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 presence of police being, you know, getting these enormous raises is not going to materially affect the safety of of Angelinos, but the the mayor is not doing that for anybody.
1: Right. And if you want to talk about things like quality of life and for people who are going to be unemployed, you know, what half the half the population is going to start is going to over the next year be at home more. Be you know. Be looking for jobs. Be you know. Tra- ch- changing the way they have to shop and feed their families. And you know, people are really going to need this support structure of a city where transit works and the sidewalks are clear and there's shade being planted. You know, we we're gonna we need we're gonna need to go back to the parks and have the parks be really clean and well taken care of so we can have a place to go outside safely. So this what I'm so afraid of is all these little tiny. Back to basics type of things are, are they're already getting dropped out. Like, I when I was taking my one of my short social, socially distanced walk the other day, I filed a 311 request about an overgrown sidewalk because we had so much rain that was like completely impassable and, and dangerous. And I got a reply that, like, because of the pandemic, we're not doing overgrown sidewalk requests right now. Mm. We're, we're not going to come fix this for you as more people are walking around their neighborhoods than ever. So, we're already starting to see this. Deterioration of the very basic things that we didn't do well before, and now they're going to say, "Oh, we don't have any money to fix sidewalks. We don't have we don't have any money." Maybe
0: to the city attorney's office will step in and say that systematic <laughs> defunding of these street programs will result in some kind of major settlement that the city will have to engage in.
2: The city attorney's office, the, the staff of which also got a large raise, and this one was not. Before the pandemic, it was after. This went before city council just a few weeks ago in the marathon meeting, the 10-hour meeting, and city council was like, yeah, we got a little extra money lying around. Let's give it to these, these city attorneys that work so hard to get us into billion-dollar settlements for virtually everything. Yeah, I mean, I would be honest if they if the mayor was just like, look, I we thought that our city employees deserved more money and these are the ones, the police officers, that we, we we think their work is more valuable right now. And so we will not be asking them to give any of that money back. But he doesn't mention that because then people might start saying, really wish you would ask them to maybe postpone that enormous raise for a year. Yeah. And live with the same amount of money they were being paid last year. No cuts. Just... Not significantly more money for this year. How about the same overtime budget, too? How about the same overtime budget or maybe the same the overtime budget of even two years ago, which would save the city 90 million dollars? That seems like something that people were this brought up more often. People might be arguing for instead of the the cuts that we're uh, seeing instead. Let's move on from the mayor's budget to the mayor's fund. Now this I'm very excited for the LA podcast text thread has been lighting up over the mayor's fund. <laughs> the mayor's fund is not an official city sanctioned project. This is the mayor's side project where he individually has gone out with a little team of helpers and raised $10 million at first to be distributed uh, people who need it, people who've had their incomes affected by uh, the pandemic, and it's oh, people who are undocumented are also eligible for these cards, which is great. He's distributing debit cards, prepaid debit cards to people for the value be- is between $700 and $1,500. A lot of people wanted to have these cards, and they're eventually, they cut it off with uh, half a million people applying for 10,000 cards which means it has an acceptance rate much lower than the most uh, prestigious universities in, in the world to get one of these $700 cards. Earlier this week, the, the guy who was running the fund, a guy named Jeremy Bernard, who was an Obama guy, he was the former White House uh, Social Secretary under Obama, steps down in, I would say, circumstances that were at least vague. Yep no one really there was a lot of no comments about about why he was stepping down they said it was
0: they said they So the mayor's spokesperson said he wasn't going to comment on it because it was a personnel issue which if anything i would say fans the flames of of
2: gossip even more and so people were posting their rejection letters from the mayor's fund and saying i don't understand why i really need this money i'm not sure why i would be rejected from something like this other than just like bad luck and also, it said rejected. It did not say we're gonna be giving out more of these, and maybe you can get one then. It said you are straight up rejected from from getting one of these cards. And then Mayor Garcetti went on the the Garcetti show that Alyssa watches every night. Every night did his broadcast that he also releases in uh, in podcast form, and he made this announcement. Good news related to the mayor's fund.
3: The original plan was to try to distribute ten thousand of these cards. But because of our next announcement, over the next several days, we'll now distribute approximately 15,000 Angelino cards to help approximately 45,000 individual Angelinos in need. And this increase was made possible because of the largest donation we have received to date into the Mayor's Fund for Los Angeles, a five million dollar gift from the state of <laughs> Whoa! Like not
1: where I thought that was going, not where I thought that was going) It's such a record scratch. Oh, from the state of Qatar. Okay. I was like making dinner. I was making dinner and like the plates like crashed out of my hand and I was like, what? What?
2: (laughs) (laughs) And he immediately attempted to like answer your questions like, like Qatar, that's interesting. This is
3: normal. He's like, yes, it's totally normal. Here's why. The people of Qatar have helped out this country in other emergencies uh, during Katrina and Harvey.
2: And you pointed out something that I thought was interesting, Alyssa, about those. Specific relief efforts.
1: Yeah, what do what do New Orleans and Houston and L.A. have in common? Is something I think we need to think about, or maybe they help many other disasters, and but they don't, they didn't give the money to like the whole country's coronavirus recovery right. program, or even the areas um, that
2: are most, or e- yeah, hard even hit. somewhere
1: like New York that's hardest hit. So what do New Orleans and Houston? and L.A. have in common. Any thoughts, guys?
2: Now that you mention it, they all produce a lot of oil. Hmm, that's interesting. And they all have global ports. That's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting, too. And a lot of, like, natural gas comes in and out of those ports to other places around the world.
1: And during a week when oil had some interesting <laughs> <laughs> ups and downs, mostly downs, <laughs>
2: So I loved that conspiracy theory that really scratched an, an itch for me. But, like, in general, these are, you know, they're behested payments, which I think we've talked about before on the show, where a public official is going out to people with uh, huge resources and saying, please give me money, but, like, don't expect anything in in return. And a a nation like Qatar has... A lot of like business dealings with a with a huge city like L.A., including they have investment funds, huge ones. I believe it's like in the state investment funds. Yeah. There's that sovereign, are, sovereign wealth fund is is very active yeah. in real estate, including in Los Angeles and the richest people in Qatar come to like Los Angeles is a very very popular vacation destination. Beverly Hills, you know, like Beverly Hills, like uh, in, in, in August, then in, in the summer, it's much cooler here than in Qatar. So that's when when people come here. So there's a lot of like business entanglement. And Scott, you had a theory that I love.
0: Yeah,
1: I think I like Scott's theory. I, think.
2: So, I mean, so my my theory hinges on
0: something that I'm frequently saying or or the, the question I'm frequently posing on this podcast When when does Eric Garcetti think that he is leaving L.A.? And and I think, you know, with with Joe Biden being the presumptive nominee for the Democratic Party this fall, I I, I do believe that there is potentially something to the the notion that the state of Qatar might have an interest in showing a very generous giving a very generous show of support to a high ranking Joe Biden surrogate, particularly because potential
2: cabinet member.
0: Probably a cabinet member when we're when we're looking at next year if if Biden wins the the general election uh, and if if I were Qatar you know, you can't donate to the Joe Biden campaign a lobbyist for the state of Qatar tried to do that and the 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 donation was refunded obviously foreign nationals can't can't donate. But what they can do is donate to this nonprofit that is being organized and run—was well, quote unquote independent—but look up their address; it's it's in the mayor's office, um, and uh, they they can make a very generous donation: five million dollars. The, the mayor's fund has existed since Garcetti founded it in twenty fourteen. Mm-hmm. In the most recent years that we have their nine ninety tax forms available, uh, the, yes, the twenty seventeen year, go Scott. They, they received total revenues of like for 3 and $4 million. So Qatar has in a one fell swoop donated more than the mayor's fund normally gets in a year. It's an
2: extremely generous show of support. And, and I'm not sure if we've talked about it in the past, but like they've demonstrated interest in LA city politics before. Two different lobbyists for Qatar and one of their spouses gave max donations to David Rue in his city council primary. So, I mean, it's look, it's great that they're giving out money. That's really good that the mayor's fund is doing the, like, you know, that like we need relief efforts. But it just does feel like like what if we just took it out of I mean, it's 15 million dollars. Hmm, that's less than half of the overtime payments that they gave to the LAPD just for this year in raises. Like, could this be something that is evenly distributed among taxpaying Angelinos instead of this like kind of murky business.
0: I, I want to say, so I want to say something about that. What, one more thing about, about general election politics before we do, I, I do, I think it's worth noting uh, one additional reason why the state of Qatar might look favorably on a Joe Biden presidency is that Donald Trump has been one of, if not the most pro Saudi presidents in, in, in recent memory. He's been exceptionally willing to forgive the, the Saudi government for what others would consider authoritarian oversteps, the, the murder of Washington Post uh, journalist Jamal Khashoggi. More salient to the state of Qatar, though, they have been the subject of an ongoing blockade led by Saudi Arabia for, I think, almost mm-hmm. two years now. Donald Trump has repeatedly come down on the side of the, the, so- the Saudi government in that conflict, which led to Qatar exiting OPEC which they had been a member in for a couple decades. So obviously there are reasons why that government might want to support a non-Trump candidate for president and might see supporting, you know, the mayor's fund for Los Angeles for example as a way to signal their interest in high-level discussions with the Joe Biden campaign. I don't know. That is purely a conspiracy theory. But I do want to return to your other question, which is why are we doing it this way in the first place?
2: Well, I also, just in case you thought there was only one example of potentially this exact thing playing out in this same announcement. Yeah, yeah. He also announced that two, he said two uh, Taiwanese-American businessmen, Jackson Yang and David Sun, who both have very strong, like, L.A. County, like, they don't live in the city of Los Angeles. But, like, I think their business, David Sun uh, co-founded uh, Kingston, the memory, like, a uh, hard drive company. And Jackson Yang has an office supply company that are, one's in Orange County, but they're, they're nearby. They donated either each a million dollars or a total million dollars. I, I, I wasn't sure based on the announcement. And so like that, these are Angelinos, like that's fine. That's great. But then it turns out that they made their donation via the Taipei Economic and Cultural Office, which is the Taiwanese embassy. I mean, in the United States, Taiwan is not allowed to have an embassy because we're not allowed to have formal uh, diplomatic relations with them. So the Economic and Cultural Office is the embassy. So it's like just in case you thought that was, this was just a disinterested donation, not from a, a nation. They said, no, no, no. In fact, this is this is from us. <laughs> and this is also a country that has traditionally had conflict with a country that Donald Trump has that might want to have access to, to Joe Biden and maybe some of the issues that it's dealt with with a country like maybe China. Yeah, like. It's, yeah, absolutely. It, it does lend credence to your theory absolutely. that this could be why these huge donations are coming in.
0: Extremely, extremely prominent presidential candidate surrogate is passing the hat around. I don't know. Maybe throw a couple <laughs> bucks in it. Yeah, no. I, but I want to. I want to talk about the, the Angelino card for a moment, just like as a general concept. The this is, like you're saying, a prepaid card stimulus. It's, it's basically a local complement to the federal stimulus checks that are going out right now. The Mayor's Fund for Los Angeles, which is this nonprofit that that the mayor started, nominally, nominally independent, but focuses on things that he tells it to focus on. That doesn't sound that independent, whatever. So they said they wanted to put out this additional layer of stimulus because for a couple of good reasons. One, that people were not getting stimulus checks from the federal government fast enough. It remains unclear whether or not the Angelino card has substantially alleviated that concern. Uh, he, he did say, right, Alyssa, uh, he, he said that they have handed, they've handed some a lot out. out. OK, great. That's good. And also the the fact that we we know that people who are not citizens have been barred from receiving the federal stimulus money.
3: So here's
2: how I know, hold that thought. Yeah. I do want to play this clip that I pulled. Here's how you know that they have started making preparations to to hand these out.
3: And I also want to thank all of the staff and team at Mayor's Fund, the city employees and nonprofit partners who are doing all of the paperwork and meeting with people in person to distribute these cards. And let me also thank Suffolk Construction and its CEO John Fish for donating and installing plexiglass barriers at each one of those 16 distribution centers. To increase safety for everyone.
2: That's how you know they're getting ready to hand those out when they start sneeze guards.
3: <laughs> the sneeze
2: guards
0: go
3: up,
2: okay. <laughs> With the bulletproof barrier
0: start um, donated. So the the other issue, of course, is is that people who are not citizens couldn't get the federal stimulus dollars, right? Yeah. So that brings us to the actual construction of this program itself. We have uh, it's like if you're if you meet. Three different criteria, then you are eligible to receive an Angelino card. But the funding, instead of coming from the, the public coffers, is all coming from private entities. And the reason for that is because of this change that the Trump administration made. Uh, I, I want to say earlier this year, but God, I, honestly, who knows at this point? It could have been last year. I think it was earlier this year that the, the Trump administration made an immigration rule change that... Anybody who was determined to have received public benefit, or was like likely to become a public charge; those two are, are they go kind of hand in hand in federal immigration mm-hmm. policy. Somebody who is coming into this country is not a citizen, but is receiving public services under this new Trump rule can be denied uh, permanent legal status on that basis alone going forward. And the Supreme Court, the conservative Supreme Court, determined that. That was okay. They were going to let that, they were not going to injunct that while while legal challenges to it proceed. So now we're in a position where, in order to do stimulus that includes non citizen Angelenos, which is good, this is what we should be doing here. In order Mm -hmm. to do that, we need to only get that money from private actors. We've constructed a situation where legally our social safety net can be funded by Taiwan. And Qatar, but not by the city of Los Angeles. Really? I mean, so you could do it legally, but you would be putting all of the people who receive those benefits at enormous risk going forward. And it's and it's really just terrifying. I mean, so I I think that the question though that we have to ask is: the need is clearly enormous. So if you have two groups of people who need this stimulus, you have citizens who need this stimulus and non-citizens who need this stimulus. Why are we making them compete against each other? Take the private money that's being donated, right. establish an Angelino card fund specifically for people who are not citizens, and then use public dollars to do the same thing for people who are citizens, who, who stand to lose nothing from right. accepting that. Mm-hmm.
2: Does the state money that uh, Gavin Newsom is distributing to non-citizens, does that put them at, at the kind of risk you're talking about? I, I actually don't know.
0: I, I, I would have to look it up. I'll, I'll check yeah. that out and we can post it.
2: Alyssa, uh, just so we don't like leave it on the table, that would you say it's fair to say that there is a connection between Qatar and the Olympics or potentially like large sporting events?
1: Oh, uh, I mean, is that even still going to happen? Is that next year? No, two years.
0: Two years, but right? they they have uh they have an additional wrinkle for the Qatar World Cup in 2022, which is that none of the qualifying matches have taken place, and they all right.
1: Know. That's what I mean. Is are they going to be able to even go on that time sc- schedule? Yeah, I mean, if anybody wants to come and and share their, well, then it doesn't work because we don't have to, we are building some stadiums, I guess, but they'll probably want to come here and see, you know, how our Olympics planning is going. But yeah, we shouldn't, we shouldn't really get any tips on, on building stadiums. is like, so no, you're
2: saying nobody is buried in your stadiums. (laughs) You're trying to tell me there's not a single migrant laborer who is, is sealed in the cement. Well, that's, that's
0: why the Crenshaw line isn't opening on
2: time, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and i think one of the olympic review like candidate review summits was in doha so i oh,
1: mean you meet yeah. people
2: like yeah. you go like you go you try to get the olympics in your city you meet a lot of interesting people from around the world uh was that the most interesting thing that you saw on the mayor show this week Alyssa?
1: i think so that was the that was the biggest head turner. there was also like a a kids episode where they talked to it was a special episode. It was outside yeah. of the mayor show where they talked to kids. I thought it was very sweet.
2: Did any kid um, ask just, anything? Cute? Just,
1: learning, just learning a lot. No, but they had Dr. Furr, which I thought was great. So you could talk to ask her questions, which I thought was really awesome to have. Oh, that's awesome. It's asked the county health department. It's, it's just heartwarming. It's a heartwarming half hour <laughs> of my day every day.
2: She should come on this show. She's going to talk to a bunch of kids. She should come on a show for adults.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Who act like kids.
2: Thank you for listening to LA Podcast. Thank you for subscribing uh, to the Sepulveda Pass at patreon.com slash the Pod. Thank you to Brian Holmes for producing this episode and also doing uh, our new art and theme song for our bonus show, The Ten. Thank you to Keith Sharwath and Will Etling for designing our website, TheLAPod.com. We will be back again next week. Goodbye.